Good morning. Scripture reading today is from Ephesians 6:10 through 19. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over his present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kay. It's good to see each one of you this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you before, my name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community and really glad to have the opportunity to be with you today. So thanks for coming and celebrating with us, worshiping together. And before we dive into this passage that Kay read for us, I'd love to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to help us in the midst of this. So Father in heaven, thank you for the gift that you've given us in your word. And your word is truth. So we pray now that the Holy Spirit would be at work um, making these words live in our life, even now, even right in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you've ever felt this reality, that it's, you get the sense that someone or something is sort of always working against you. That as you try to become the person you long to be, uh, as you try to accomplish anything meaningful in the world, that it seems like there is a force that is pushing back against that. And that could be anything from completing a project at work, maintaining an exercise routine, eating healthy, uh, paying off debt, saving for a down payment, launching a new business, uh, developing character in your kids, any of that. Um, you feel, I think, there's a, often a resistance of some kind to that. And best-selling author and screenwriter Stephen Pressfield gives this phenomenon a name. He calls it resistance, the resistance. And he's written books like The War of Art and Do the Work, and they're written for people who particularly for do, do creative work. Um, but he says whenever you try to do anything worthwhile in the world, you run up against this thing that he calls the resistance. If you want to do something good, true, beautiful in the world, you run up against this. And he gives in his book, Do the Work, he gives this list of if you're going to try to do any of these things, you're going to experience resistance. So he says this, the pursuit of any calling in writing, painting, music, film, dance, or any creative art, however marginal or unconventional. The launching of any entrepreneurial venture or enterprise, for profit or otherwise. Any diet or health regimen, any program of spiritual advancement, any activity whose aim is the acquisition of chiseled abdominals, any course or program designed to overcome an unwholesome habit or addiction, education of any kind, any act of political, moral, or ethical courage, including the decision to change for the better some unworthy pattern of thought or conduct in ourselves. 
the undertaking of any enterprise or endeavor whose aim is to help others. Any act that entails commitment, a commitment of the heart. So he says, you know, the decision to get married, to have a child, to weather a rocky patch in a relationship. The taking of any principled stand in the face of adversity. So he writes this about resistance. He says, resistance is a repelling force. It's negative. Its aim is to shove us away, distract us, prevent us from doing our work. Resistance will reason with you like a lawyer or jam a nine millimeter in your face like a stick-up man. But resistance is always lying. Now, I, I don't know what Stephen Pressfield believes. I don't know if he's a Christian, if he considered himself a follower of Jesus or not. Um, but he does make this point in an article that he uh, wrote on sort of answering some critics of this idea of a resistance force. He says this, critics, spare me the God is dead manifesto. He says, not even the guys who thought that stuff up, used a little stronger word than that, believed it. They were battling resistance every day. And he says, I refuse to believe that we humans are alone and bereft in a meaningless cosmos. If we were, there would be no such phenomenon as resistance. What would the possible purpose could resistance have or serve in a universe devoid of meaning? And, and we feel it, don't we? Right? You work so hard to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And, and then in a, a moment, you, you experience weakness or temptation you grow uh, weak, there's anger, memory of an old shame, and it feels like you're right back where you started so many years ago. Or you spent so much time and effort repairing a relationship. And in a moment, the wrong word spoken, something that's misheard, something that's misunderstood, and the whole thing falls apart again. Or you, or you think about how many people in our country simply stopped going to church in the last two years. Not because they decided they didn't believe anymore or that they had adopted a, a new religion or faith, but simply because of the disruption of a virus. They just got out of the habit, out of the pattern. And, and then we think about all the division that occurred in our country and this is just a couple years ago, right? On both extremes of, but of whether or not we should put a piece of fabric over our faces. I mean, that literally, that split churches, that divided friendships and families. Is there something more to that? A force, a someone creating division. And then, of course, there's the big things, right? War, oppression, human trafficking, violence, mass shootings, genocide, suicide, scandal, all these things. And, and right, we can say, well, that's just a, a lack of education, that economic hardship contributes to those things, that these are the outcomes of, of political ideologies, that uh, this is the influence of social media, the rise in, in mental health and mental illness issues in our, in our culture. And that's, all that is certainly true. And we shouldn't dismiss that. But it could, could it be that there is someone, a force, a person who's behind it all, He's laughing at us, using those things to destroy us, using those things to divide us. And friends, according to the, the scriptures, the worldview of the biblical authors, there is an unseen war all around us constantly. And again, I know this is hard for us to believe as 21st century people living in the secular progressive West, right? 
that there's an unseen spiritual realm where there's a battle taking place. Like personal spiritual evil, that, that feels like oh, that belongs in Stephen King, that belongs in Stranger Things. That's great for fiction, but that's not the real world in which we live. But I think, well, we don't want to start blaming every single bad thing on a demon. Every cold, every, you know, fender bender. I think it is also true that one of the devil's greatest lies is convincing us, especially in cultures like ours, that he isn't real. In fact, the great theologians from the movie The Usual Suspects knew this, right? The greatest trick that ever ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Now, there are certain cultural contexts in which there is an, an over-obsession with the occult and with the spiritual realm, which can be just as, as, as dangerous as people are trapped in paralyzing fear. But could it be that the evil one is just as happy, and C.S. Lewis points this out in the beginning of the Screwtape Letters, that he could be just as happy to be unknown in a culture and therefore be able to operate without any resistance or opposition at all? So don't be fooled. The message of the scriptures from the very beginning to the end is that we are in a cosmic battle between good and evil, life and death, love and hate. And if we ignore it, that's when we are most susceptible to his lies. So here's the key takeaway from our passage this morning, and that is that the Christian life is a battle. So stand firm. The Christian life is a battle, so stand firm firm. Not so run and hide, not so withdraw. No, stand firm because the battle is already won. And if you haven't already, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and grab one of the pew Bibles, or you can even just pull it up on your phone. But I'd love for you to look along with me in these texts. And this is our final message in the book of Ephesians. And as Paul wraps up this important letter to this ancient church in the city of Ephesus, he reminds them, reminds us that we are in a battle. And so much of the first part of this letter that Paul writes is reminding this church of the victory that they have in Jesus. That Jesus actually defeated sin and death, and he is sitting in heaven reigning. And so now as he gets to the end of the letter, though, he says, even though we have Jesus reigning in victory now, there's still a battle going on. The battle is not over, so stand firm. This is verse 10. Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're going to talk about that in a moment. It's really important. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places. So if you're going to stand firm, you need to know, first of all, who the real enemy is. That's our first main point this morning. Know your real enemy. And your real enemy is a spiritual enemy. It is not other humans. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, Paul says. Not other humans. Your real enemy is not your spouse. It's not your ex-spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your employer. It's not your coworker. It's not your boss. It's not the person who's been ruining your life for the last year. Your real enemy is a spiritual enemy. Our, our, our real enemy is not a politician or a political party. It's not another geopolitical actor in the world. It is a spiritual reality. We don't wrestle against flesh 
and blood. And, and it's more than just Paul here in Ephesians 6 who articulates this perspective. Actually, the whole Bible takes seriously the idea that there is a spiritual realm in which there is a real enemy. And he has many different names in the Bible. Sometimes he's called the Satan or Satan, which means simply the accuser, the adversary. It's called the father of lies, the evil one, the deceiver, the tempter, the ancient serpent, and many others. But they're all names that are talking about the same person. Not someone who is equal to God. That's a kind of a cosmic dualism. That's some certain religions that you have a, a, a kind of a dark force and a, a, a light force, and they're sort of equal in, in status, and they're always warring against one another. No, one thing the Bible is really clear about is that the Satan, the evil one, that he is a created being, that God created him. He is one of God's creations. Just as God created all the spiritual realms, spiritual forces, but that who turned against and rebelled against God. So he's not equal to God. He's a created being, but he is nonetheless powerful and cunning and very real. Again, as hard as that is, I think, for us in the modern secular West to believe. And his most powerful weapon, Paul points out here, is that he lies. He is a liar. In fact, Jesus, when he talks about the evil one, and this is another thing too, just as a side note, that if we want to take Jesus seriously, we have to take seriously the reality of an evil one because Jesus talks about him regularly. So we have to wrestle with who our view of Jesus is, and if we have a high view of Jesus, he has a high view that there is an evil one that he's come to confront. But in John chapter 8, when Jesus talks about the evil one, he says that he is a liar, and that when he lies, he speaks his native language. I think the NIV brings it across, which is great. He's a liar, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. Paul calls him here a schemer. It's the same idea. And this idea of a schemer this uh, kind of scheming methodology that he uses. It's actually the same word that Paul uses back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. And there Paul says that when we've grown into maturity in Christ, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves, blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness, in the techniques of deceit. That's the same language translated schemer here in chapter 6. And there, in 4.14, Paul's talking about human deceit. But here in chapter 6, he explains that behind those, those human lies and schemes, they have their source in our real enemy. And we first encounter him as a serpent in disguise in Genesis chapter 3. He comes to Adam and Eve just as a, another one of the creatures in the garden. He comes sideways. He doesn't confront them directly. He tricks them. And the very first thing that he says is a lie. The first words that the serpent speaks. And again, we don't have time to go into all Genesis 3, even the idea of a serpent speaking. I know that's hard to grasp what's happening in the symbolism, what's happening in metaphorically, what's happening literally. At some point we can do a whole deep dive in Genesis 3. But for now, this is how it's articulated, right? The very first thing that the serpent speaks is a lie. Did God really say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden. So lie framed as a question. And more than anything else, we know that our enemy lies to us constantly, constantly. This is at the top of Paul's mind. And as he warns us about who our real enemy is, he calls him a liar repeatedly. 
He tells us lies to confuse us, to hurt us, and ultimately to destroy us. And he does this at every level imaginable. And I think one of the greatest lies that the enemy tells us is the lie that we are alone. He tries to convince each and every one of us that we are alone, that we are isolated. And the more that we learn about interpersonal neurobiology, how, how even at our, our physicality, how our brains work, and our mirror neurons and all of this, we learn that, that isolation and aloneness are one of the most awful things that can happen to a human. The most awful experiences we can have, most psychological distressing is to be alone. And I'm not talking about solitude or just you know, having a few hours by yourself to, to read a book alone. I'm talking about the sense that something awful is happening to me or will happen to me and there will be no one there to help me. that sense of terror that something terrible is going to happen or something terrible is happening to me and there is no one there to help me. No one there, who's no one's coming for me. No one's looking for me. No one understands this utter rejection and isolation. In one of his best novels, Salem's Lot, Stephen King's writes, it's repeatedly you know, put in like kind of the top 10 list of his books. He writes this. He says, alone. Yes, that's the word. The most awful word in the English tongue. Is that the word you would have come up with? What's the most awful word in the English language? Stephen King says, alone. Yes, that's the key word, the most awful word in the English tongue. Murder doesn't hold a candle to it, and hell is only a poor synonym. And what happens to someone who's overcome by that lie and believes it over and over and over again that they are alone? When that becomes the core thing, we, we have actually a, a term for it in our cultural context. We call them deaths of despair. Suicide, overdoses, rooted in the lie that I am alone in my pain and that there is no one coming to help me. There's no one who can help me. And that the only way out of this is drugs that take me away from reality or to actually take my own life. And, and friends, I just want to say to you this morning that if you are here in this room and you have felt that, if you've heard that lie that you were alone and maybe it took everything in you to even just to get out of bed and come and be in this space, I'm so glad you did because I want to tell you that that is a lie. You are not alone. You are never alone. And you are part of a community who will come beside you. You have a Savior who is always with you. Do not believe that lie, that you are alone. And the liar does this at, at a cultural level, too. I mean, he does that at an individual level. But imagine, again, what the evil one can do if he can convince a society that human beings are nothing more than cosmic accidents and the best thing we can do, the highest goal of our lives, is simply to maximize pleasure and comfort at every turn. And what would that do to, say, the most vulnerable in a culture? What does that do to children, to the elderly, to those who suffer chronically and, and can't maximize pleasure? What does it do to the unborn, to women? What does it do to families and communities and other things that only work through a commitment despite hardship? Right? Like if, if, if the evil one can convince us that really the highest goal of life is pleasure and comfort, then how quickly will that undermine relationships like marriages 
and work relationships that require lots of non-pleasure sometimes to make it through hard patches, to come out on the other side stronger. What about Christians and churches? Do you think the evil one lies to us as well, like as a community? Lies like, uh, that, that part of the Bible you can ignore because we know better now. Have you ever heard that one in some form? Have you ever been tempted to believe that? I know I have. Since some of this seems outdated, maybe we, it'd be easier to kind of just set that part aside. Or lies like, if we can just get the right person or the right party in office, then God can finally do what he needs to do. Then God's plan will finally unfold, that his work will finally stop being hindered. I think that's a particularly dangerous lie I sense in our cultural moment. Where politics and political power have become so totalizing. Now, here's the truth. The liar has been defeated. It's one of my favorite songwriters puts it, the prince of despair has been beaten, but the loser still fights. I love that. The prince of despair has been beaten, but the loser still fights. And because the loser still fights, we have to train. We have to train. Jesus has not yet returned to set all things right, so we have to train for the real battle. If our enemy is ultimately spiritual and unseen, this is our second key thing, then we have to train for the real battle against our real enemy. And this training also has to be spiritual. And this is what we find in verses 13 through 18. Paul says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Then again, this language is stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which one can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, we could take time this morning and break down each and every one of those pieces of the armor, and that could have some benefit, but we'd be here way till past when you want to be here if we did that. And I actually think Paul's point is not so much giving us a checklist of things to put on, but giving us a picture, a visual image a picture of one of readiness, of being prepared, trained, and dressed for the spiritual battle raging all around us. And if the devil's primary weapon against us is lies, it only makes sense that our primary defense is truth. And, and you see that all throughout the armor, this language of, of truth, right? There's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of God's word. These are all things that are proclaiming the truth about who we are. And if you want to combat the lies, you have to know the truth. And the only way we can recognize those lies is if we know the truth. Someone might say, well, well I've got my truth, you've got your truth. But again, that's another one of the lies. One of his biggest lies is that you can train for this battle by yourself. It's almost like if he can't convince you you're alone, he's still going to try to convince you that you can do this life alone. But think about that. What kind of battle would that be? You against the devil. But thankfully, it's not just you against the devil. It's us, the church, together, headed by our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. It is no small thing. 
And if I can quote Salem's Lot, again, I've just, I love, I just read this book. Stephen King's not for everyone, to be clear. Salem's Lot is about vampires. They're trying to kill the vampires. And, of course, if you're going to kill vampires, you've got to bring a Catholic priest in at some point to help you, right? And that's what's happening in the book at this point. And this old Catholic priest in Salem's Lot, he says that the church is a force to be reckoned with. Listen to what he says. This is the old priest. He says, the church is more than a bundle of ideals, as these younger fellows, these younger priests seem to believe. It's more than a spiritual Boy Scout troop. The church is a force, and one does not set a force in motion lightly. Friends, we do not do this alone. We are part of something that's more than a bundle of ideals or a spiritual Boy Scout troop. We're part of a reality of God's kingdom that is breaking in and one day will be the truest thing that there is in the universe. And again, think about where Paul's writing this. He's in a Roman prison. He, all he has to do is to look out his door or maybe even have someone next to him, a, a soldier chained to his wrist, who's in this spiritual kind of this armor, this armor of the Roman Empire. I mean, it's like Paul's not having to make this up, this helmet, shield, all this stuff. He's got guys around him who are guarding him, who are wearing this stuff, even as he writes. And Paul knows that the strength of the Roman Empire comes in the ability of his army to work together, that one of the things that made them strong was their ability to stand together, that these shields that they carried could, could be linked together and even over top of them to defend against a force that if any one of them lost a shield or was not, that they were incredibly vulnerable, that the strength of the Roman Empire and its army was this interlocking, standing together of their soldiers. Their strength was their togetherness. That's how they could stand. And if you want to stand firm against the lies, you need to surround yourself with the truth and with a community of people who will help you keep believing the truth. And for, like, that is why it is so important to gather regularly together. You know, here at church on Sunday mornings, in a community group, in a Bible study, because we need other people to remind us of the truth. So as we sing songs here on Sunday morning, it's not just because, like, well, music's kind of fun. So, you know, we need to have the truth spoken over us in song as we sing to one another. Do you ever get that? We're singing to God, yes, but also in these lyrics, we are singing over each other. And there may come a day where you walk into this place and you can't sing because you're too depressed. You're too sad. You're too sick. You're, you're struggling too much with your faith. But you have a community of believers, of brothers and sisters, who will sing the truth over you every single week. We hear the scriptures read. We, we take communion. We're reminded of the truth that, yes, we are great sinners, but we have an even greater Savior. That the truest thing about us is no longer our sin, but the fact that we have been rescued, adopted, redeemed. When we gather here together and pray for one another, we're reminded of the truth. So you have to know your real enemy, train for the real battle, and then finally, stand in the real victory. Stand in the real victory. So Paul says it over and over again in this passage. Stand firm. Stand. Withstand the evil day. Stand, stand, stand. But here's the question. What kind of army just stands there? Right? When we think about an army, a successful army, you, you imagine one that's, that's advancing forward, that's pushing forward, that's running forward into combat. What kind of army just stands well, friends, the army that just stands firm is one that has already won the battle. 
the kind that's already won. And the whole letter that Paul is writing to this church has been about Jesus' victory. Have you noticed that? And and if you go back all the way to chapter 1, I want to read you a bit of chapter 1 because Paul starts this whole letter by reminding us that the victory has been won. Verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, notice this emphasis on prayer at the beginning and end of this letter, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. This is all the truth to stand against the lies, right? Knowledge, revelation, eyes of our hearts open, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And saints are not just, you know, people canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. Saints are all believers in Jesus. We are invited into this community to train with this inheritance that we have in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Jesus when he was raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus defeated death. He's sitting, reigning with God in the heavenly places far above every rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And listen to verse 20. He's put all things, everything, all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, the vision of Jesus that Paul gives us at the beginning of his letter as one of a risen and reigning victorious king whose victory is so sure, so permanent, so eternal, that his name is above every name, that his victory is not only for this age, but the one to come. Who can say that about any victory? It's not only for this present time, but for the age to come. But then Paul, at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, in this passage, he almost, it's almost a throwaway line. And then he says, but yeah, oh, and, and remember to pray for me, church, because I'm still in chains. And then he even mentions Tychicus, who can give them some specific ways to pray for him. Probably Tychicus is going to be the one who's going to carry the letter to Ephesus. Now here's the question. Does Paul chained up in a Roman prison look like victory to you? Does it look like victory to you? And sometimes it doesn't feel, in our cultural context, we named Zero, like we're in a battle. Right? Like, it's, it's easy to sort of ignore the spiritual battle around us. But I also want to say, sometimes it doesn't feel like we're in a victory either. Like sometimes you may be in a place where it's like, God, doesn't feel like you're winning. It doesn't feel like Jesus is on the throne. It doesn't feel like there's a victory. But for Paul, there's no contradiction between the chains on his wrists and the name above every name. In fact, for Paul, they, they go together. And yes, our enemy is real, and he wants to hurt us, and he does hurt us, but he and his schemes have nothing on the name. And he can give you rest. Right? Like how strange of a battle cry is it from our Lord who says to the battle weary, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We don't have to win because Jesus already did. He is our fortress. I want to invite the band to come, uh, and they're going to help lead us in this next section so they can come and join me now. But listen to these words from Martin Luther, the reformer 
lived 500 years ago. He wrote this poem. It's, it's a hymn, but I'm just going to read it to you as a poem. He says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, that's, that's Satan, that's the evil one, that's the serpent. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord of armies is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his tri truth, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Friends, we do not tremble for him. His doom is sure. The victory is won, and so we stand. Now, this is the point in our services where typically I would pray for us, and then we would take communion. But I want to do something a little bit different with this prayer moment. I actually want us to pray together, because Paul's key strategy against the evil one is prayer. Going to the one who has the victory. And I know that so often, I mean, I feel this, that like talking to someone I can't see feels so weak. <laughs> like it just feels like, how is that doing or accomplishing anything? And yet this is what Jesus, the Lord of the universe, modeled to us, what the writers of scripture continue to call us to do, is to act in faith, to say that, that we obeyed Jesus because he says to pray and that it makes a difference. And so we do that for him. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put a few prompts on the screen. And I'm just going to, right where you are, just by yourself, silently, I want you to pray for yourself, for the people you love, for our world, and for our church. So first, pray for yourself. Ask God to reveal the lies that you believe, or are likely to believe, and ask him to show you the truth. Take a moment to do that now. Pray for yourself. Just pray for the people you love. Because you, you probably know some of the lies that they are tempted to believe. Ask God to show them his truth. Pray for the people you love. pray for our world. You know, we live in a context of so much misinformation, of lies, of half-truths. Ask God to break through and show us a, a better way to live. Pray for our world.
finally, pray for our church that together we would stand firm in truth and love, unified together in the victory of Jesus. Pray for your church family. Dakota mentioned earlier uh, when he was talking about the prayer cards, you can always kind of participate in prayer in that way. But under these signs in this room, uh, where whenever you see someone standing under one of those signs, uh, and we do this every single week, uh, from communion to the end of the service, there will be people there who would love to pray with you. And if you've never actually had the experience of going and asking someone to pray for you, one, it, it can be hard to do and it's, it's humbling but it's also incredibly powerful. And you don't have to share lots of detail. Those, you can just say, I, I, just need, I just need someone to pray for me. And they'll be glad to do that. In fact, just in the last service, I did that. I went and asked someone to pray for me. It's such an, it, it's so powerful to do. So during the rest of the service, uh, we're going to take communion. We're going to sing a couple more songs. And I'd encourage you, if, you've, if you just feel like, I've got something I'm carrying, I've got something I'm wrestling with, I've got something I'm struggling with, or I have something I want to rejoice in, receive prayer. It is the primary weapon that we have against the spiritual forces of evil.